Hello, it's December 7th, 2016, one o'clock Eastern time, and this is Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I am your host, Heather Shea-Gasser from Michigan State University, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. On today's live broadcast, we're talking about the 2016 election and how student affairs is working toward safety, dialogue, and student engagement. Student Affairs Live is a part of the Higher Ed Live Network. Our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Be a part of our live broadcast by sharing your knowledge. You can participate in our discussion today by tweeting us using the hashtag Higher Ed Live. And thanks, as always, to my friends Alex and Val, who are moderating our back channel today. All of our episodes are free and easy to access in the video archives at higheredlive.com. Uh, we'll be referring to some of those past episodes today, so feel free to check them out. And you can also take Higher Ed Live on the go by subscribing to the iTunes podcast. Today's episode is made possible by ACPA, College Student Educators International. Support for Student Affairs Live is one of the many ways that ACPA provides innovative professional development. You can visit myacpa.org to discover other opportunities, including the 2017 convention, um, which early registration rates end um, just in two days. Higher Ed Live is also produced by M. Stoner, a marketing and communications firm that works with education institutions on branding, strategy, web design, and more. So as I said today, um, our episode focuses on the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election and the many repercussions on our nation's campuses. So here we are, nearly a month after the US election day, and these campuses, our campuses, remain locations where dialogue, engagement, political action, and student activism are all at a pivotal moment. This election has brought about concerns uh, for safety, balanced in, against the need to engage in conversation across difference. In what ways are we providing space for reflection, self-care, and dialogue simultaneously? And how do online and social media platforms affect students' political learning and promote dialogue or stifle debate? So on today's episode, we have six people. Actually, only four of them are here right now. The other two will hopefully be joining us very shortly. Um, and so I am also just really deeply grateful to Adam Gizmondi, who reached out a few weeks ago and uh, prompted this topic today. So thanks, Adam. Um, in addition to Adam, joining us in alphabetical order are Dr. Cassie Barnhart, who will be coming from class and joining us in about 10 minutes. Alex Lang. Hi, Alex. Dr. Julie Payne Kirchmeyer, hopefully will be joining us as well. She has an emergency on her campus. Um, Antonio P. Hi, Antonio. Hi. And Vu Tran. Hi, Vu. Wonderful. Thank you for each of your time and your perspectives and sharing um, space with us today on Higher Ed Live. So let's get started. Uh, for those who are watching live, we have a pretty uh, good amount of people, which is exciting. Uh, we would love to answer your questions as well, so please don't hesitate to ask again using our hashtag. I'll do my best to incorporate them, um, but first I'll start with a few uh, questions of my own. So let's begin with introductions, general introductions, role on campus, any other identities in addition to your job that you'd like to share. Um, and I will start with Adam. Uh, thanks, Heather. Um, really excited to be here and part of this conversation um, and excited to be part of this panel. Um, so uh, I work at the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education at Tufts University. Uh, we have the Tisch College of Civic Life, um, and we have various areas that work around civic engagement and civic learning. Um, 
And this topic is particularly interesting to me also because uh, last year I finished my PhD at the higher ed program at Boston College and my dissertation was on how uh, social media and student political learning and engagement uh, were related. So I'm um, happy to talk about all of it today. Great, thanks so much for being here. Alex, welcome. Hey, so my name is Alex Lang. I use they, them, their pronouns. I am currently the assistant director of the LBGT Resource Center at Michigan State University, as well as the coordinator of organizational effectiveness for the Division of Student Affairs. Um, I'm really excited to be a part of this conversation today. Um, some things I would share really briefly is one, I was born, raised um, for the first 22 years of my life in Florida. So growing up in a battleground state um, makes me have a very different lens on national elections, I feel. Um, especially now living in what is not now considered a battleground state. Um, and also a big vocalness follower for those who like NPR politics podcasts. I um, very sad Sam Sanders and Asma Khalid are leaving us, but looking forward to today. Great, thanks so much, Alex. Uh, Antonio, welcome. Hi, this is Antonio P. I serve as one of the assistant directors for residence education at Michigan State University in the Department of Residence Education and Housing Services. I've been here for four years now in my fifth. Um, <clears throat> my work consistently uh, centers around issues of inclusion and diversity on campus. Uh, more so since uh, 2014, I've shifted a lot of responsibilities towards campus climate and working with professionals across the state. Uh, and across the nation in how they're handling issues on campus. So glad you're here. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. Vu, share us, tell us about you. All right, hello everyone. My name is Vu Tran. I am currently a doctoral candidate at The Ohio State University. Uh, I use he, him, his pronouns. I also serve as the chair-elect for ACPA's Commission for Social Justice Educators. Uh, my research focuses on two specific areas. The first is uh, age and adult identity uh, and issues of ageism and adultism in higher education. And my second line of research, which is probably more pertinent to this conversation today, is around social divisiveness and specifically looking at uh, social divides along lines of race, age, and education. Great. This is going to be a fabulous conversation today. Um, and in addition to the six, hopefully, panelists, um, all of you who are watching, please share with us your thoughts and perspectives. Um, so we're going to begin actually referring to the last episode of Student Affairs Live that I hosted, which happened right before the election. It was focused on the election. Um, and at that time, I asked the panelists, you know, what do we do next? You know, when the election is all over, um, how should we, we be responding on the day after? Um, so Antonio, I know you were really involved, you and Alex and others involved with the response here at Michigan State University. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what the role specifically of student affairs educators was in that response? Most definitely. So we had anticipated uh, after uh, going through the election cycle that there was going to be some fallout afterwards. Uh, there was going to be some care that needed to be, needed to be provided to the community. We were going to have to help students to process. Uh, in some cases, we thought there may be protests and there were. Um, on campus. So we put together an event called the day after. It was the day immediately after the election. Um, we got about 300 students to attend the event. Uh, we got some faculty panel and students together to just talk about where we were at, you know, literally the day after the election. Um, it was, it was a mixed crowd. The responses were mixed. Some of the stuff that the students shared with us um, 
rage and anger outright, uh, just emotion, but wanted to provide a space for them to process. Uh, and wanted to let them know that the campus hears them, we see them, and whatever their emotions were, whether they were happy with the election results or whether they disagreed with them, that there was a space for them to process here on campus. After that, we held uh, what we've been doing several times, healing spaces, and that was smaller, more intimate uh, spaces for uh, communities to come together and to talk about uh, the election. So we held uh, we held some of we held two of these in our campus union. Uh, okay, crowds got a lot of good feedback from our students. Processed very well. A lot of resiliency we saw in those conversations as well. Now we're at the point several weeks after the election and still trying to engage uh, the conversation, but looking about looking at how do we communicate across difference. And we have an event uh, tonight on campus, which uh, the Alliance and Alex has been more involved in the planning of that. Um, and we also have a controversial speaker who's here on campus today too. So we're also preparing for, for that as well. So it's a, a buzz of activity. Those conversations continue. That's some of the work we've done here at Michigan State. This is great. Alex, can you talk a little bit about the response that you've heard directly from students? Um, and you know, did the intentionality of having these reflection spaces um, help give us your your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think we have such a wide spectrum of response here at state in terms of this election. And I want to add to you that the event the day after was really planned weeks before we knew who was going to win the election. And I think um, that's really important to name, right? Um, so we were, this wasn't about responding to certain students' feelings, it was about making sure that all of our students felt cared for after. Um, having the reflection spaces has been really important to get really get a pulse of students and what's happening on campus. Um, I think oftentimes it's argued that the choir sort of comes to these events, but the choir goes back into the community and talks to the community. So in some ways they are very representative of who um, we're trying to get a pulse of and what's going on. I would also say, in the time of a lot of heavy negative emotion and feeling and feelings of pain and being afraid um, one of our student organizations um, created sort of a coalition rally for love um, and against hate and bigotry over 2,000 students attended that and that event was made two days after the election and so there was this beautiful um, love rhetoric that was being promoted by students at the same time of saying we need to now also be very cognizant of what this means for our country for students who are concerned and for students who are excited right um, and that was a really powerful it grew into a march that went through downtown east lansing um, which grew to three thousand people um, and so it just spoke to the power of students coming together um, and there are students who say like why like why are we coddling students right now Right, and that narrative is out there too, and it's been out there for a while. Um, but I think it's been heightened um, in this particular socio-historical time as well. Thanks, Alex. So, either of you two, were were there any concerns that arose? I mean, did you get some pushback? Did you get, did you have any things that bubbled up that you weren't expecting as a result of those events? 
Yes, a, a lot of mischaracterizations came out of our healing spaces and the word healing and the notion of healing and what does that mean on a campus. And so being on a research campus, you had a lot of faculty who were concerned. You had some staff who were concerned, but uh, we didn't do anything alone. It's the collaboration and bringing the campus together is, is critical. And so working with the academic and the student affairs side of the house is critical to whatever efforts we were doing and help and making sure that the students have a hand in that as well. So it's not just one office going it alone. It's everyone coming together to provide a response to the community. And so we knew that there's a space for healing that needs to happen. We need to own a space that there are emotions that are rising high. There are individuals on our campus who feel scared. Um, there are a lot of international students right now on our campus who are wondering what's going to happen with their visas. Um, but in the middle of us trying to provide that care, there were those who said, we don't need to do healing. And I acknowledge their feelings and, and uh, feelings on that. But we decided that this was an effort that needs to have happened. We're moving away from healing now into a space of, of conversation and dialogue. And so it's a process. Um, and let's own the process from healing into uh, more conversations of discourse. Um, learning can happen in the healing. And that's also, um, that's for folks who don't understand why folks are feeling the way that they are and those who are rejoicing about the election. There's some learning that can happen each way in those. And so um, it, it was our duty, I feel like as professionals to make sure that we co-construct those spaces with students uh, to make sure that we're providing a healthy campus climate. Yeah, I think too that um, there is this, I'm trying to think of the word, um, this, this sort of like multi-partiality that we have to hold as practitioners because there were folks who were feeling I need, I need space to process. And then there were folks who I need spaces to do things. I need spaces to figure this out. And like, how do we as practitioners hold those multiple spaces at once? And, and doing that was really important at, in these, in these times and spaces. Um, and, and I think too, that like, there is um, lack of a historical context of these particular events. We've been hosting Antonio in particular healing spaces on this campus. Um, all semester, but for different things around Islamophobia, around police brutality. And so this was just another extension of those events, but they were treated as very isolated incidents and said they were about a healing from a certain someone being elected president, right? It wasn't about people healing about local elections or state elections or like what's happening still in Flint right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there have been a couple of questions from Twitter about what exactly we mean by healing. Um, and then I want to turn to Adam, too, because I know you have some thoughts. Do Alex or Antonio, either of you want to say what you specifically meant by that word, using that word? We co-constructed that space with the counseling center. And uh, sometimes the, the trauma of these events, racial battle fatigue, um, students feeling as if, you know, they've got to get up and fight xenophobia, everyday homophobia, um, sexism, that, that have, all of these pieces have come out of the election. And so how do we provide a space with the counseling center that may help students to process one, how they're feeling and figure out strategies about how they move forward for themselves. So you may not heal and be, be um, walk away from the space. And I don't think many of the students walked away feeling as if 
okay, now this is over with, now I am healed. But knowing that there's a space created for them and connecting them with resources on campus so after that space, they can continue to do the work for themselves that they need to, to continue on. Um, I, as President Obama said, you know, the sun will rise tomorrow. Well, we got to have a strategy when the sun rises tomorrow. And for some of our students who haven't had to endure that, helping them to figure that out, I think is a part of our responsibility as professionals, um, is helping them to understand, okay, you, you, you may not like the election results, um, but you've got to figure out for yourself what works for you and how you're going to move forward. So again, bringing those resources together, bringing, bringing the campus together was very critical in making sure that that was a success. We had several students leave the space and make uh, appointments with the counseling center. Others who uh, connected with different faculty on campus um, that they could talk with beyond the space. So I think overall it was, it was a great success. Um, and just to kind of uh, echo that a bit, um, here at Tufts, it, I think uh, one of the themes that we've seen is uh, a need to listen to the students and a need to listen to what is going on. And then um, as much as we try to be proactive at every turn, uh, sometimes we do need to be a little bit reactive and respond to um, events to, based on the needs of the students. And so um, our chief diversity officer here partnered with um, my office's director and a few other people. Um, and what we did for, for that similar type space was we put up um, sheets around a room and just said to students, write whatever it is that you wanna, like no censorship or anything, just put whatever it is that you're feeling right now. And um, that was a really powerful activity because I think a lot of us just as professionals learned, here's what our students are going through and um, it, it really made, I think it was an empowering thing for a lot of them to connect with one another and it, it created a sense of empathy um, around our campus that, that I don't know that we would have been able to, to plan or, or capture in any other way without bringing in the student voice. Great, thanks. Thanks for sharing that also. Um, so before we move on to the next question, I wanna introduce Cassie Barnhart. Um, thank you so much for being here today, coming from class. Um, Kathy, do you want to just give us a brief overview of what you do and um, any other anything else that you'd like to share related to the topic today? Sure, just to get started. So I study the ways in which students and universities as organizational actors understand and interpret their social responsibility. So sort of the, how they make sense of what their duty is to community beyond their individual self-interest or their organizational self-interest. And for universities in particular, that's a little bit complicated because it's not just one person deciding, it's a community deciding. And the community is comprised of a range of stakeholders in which students certainly are a part, but they are um, not a sort of, uh, they're not an actor that acts with one voice. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> they're a very fractured entity, a fractured group. Um, and that's not fractured in terms of ideology as much as it's just thinking about they have different interests based on their sort of positions and context. Um, you know, some of the things that we're talking about already, I think get at some of these ideas about however, however folks feel about the election, the social institution of higher education played a part in the outcome, independent of where 
an individual might hold their relative approval of what the outcome is. They they played a part in that outcome. And so much of what I've, I'm hearing being discussed so far is giving students a sort of uh, span of action or some space to figure out what their span of action is to enact sort of civic duty, civic orderliness, civic disorder, however you might interpret it, um, in a way that suits them. I mean, for a long time, electoral politics have been criticized as sort of a, a lowest common denominator of, of voting as being, you know, just kind of the most cursory element of civic participation. And what I'm hearing the folks describe at Michigan State is sort of variations on civic participation, whether it's coming together in community or whether it's thinking about where allies are or whether it's thinking about how does the institution re respond in, you know, what the, what's the worthiness of their response in creating these spaces, all those sorts of things. Thank you so much um, for those thoughts. And I think they definitely relate to some of the questions that have been coming in um, over Twitter. Um, Zahas, uh, who has been a past panelist on uh, Student Affairs Live, asked a really great question that I'd like to pose to the group. So what has it been like engaging in community that resists dialogue across difference um, based on belief? And I don't know if any of you have those you know, perspectives or thoughts that you want to share um, about how that also has complicated this work. I'll jump in on this. Okay. So I, I think that the notion of dialogue from a social justice education perspective uh, is is very, without sounding too pessimistic, idealistic. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, it's an aspiration uh, many times. And I think one of the big challenges that have come has come out of this election has been that the the normed discourse around election season is not set up for dialogue uh, we're we in sort of the western neoliberal um tradition have been conditioned to engage in debate and not dialogue and i think the ways in which that's modeled for us by the media modeled for us by people that we look up to, um, that's, it's difficult to sort of after the election say, okay, we've been, we're done debating, now let's get back to dialoguing and connecting with one another. I don't, I think that part of the healing um, that needs to happen is both healing for ourselves, but also um, healing the like, bridges that have been maybe not burned, but uh, have been blockaded uh, across differences. And so um, I think it's a real challenge. And I, I, I don't think that just by the facts that we use the word dialogue means that it's something that we can easily implement. Yeah, I will also jump in here too. Um, so tonight, um, um, the student organization that I advise, the Alliance of Cornelia Students and myself have been working to structure a true what we said right this true dialogue across difference and that has taken relationship building that has taken um really talking about guiding virtues of our conversation and what we're agreeing to and i think there is a belief that you can sort of just jump right into dialogue especially in such a polarized um 
season that we have, and not even just two polls right there. I would argue that there are several um, polls in this polarized sort of um, country that we're living in now. And, and so it takes a lot more work and the feeling has been hard. It, it really has been because I think of what um, Ruby Sales, who's a civil rights icon, talks about and she talks about how like we must always lead with humanization and never demonization of one another and so much demonization is happening right now on many sides and that's scary to me because we're we're, we're reducing people to less than human and when people are less than human we believe many of us believe that that means people are not worthy right and so um and that's challenging and i don't think many people are there yet um, to to start having conversations. That's where we're sort of having this sort of model conversation tonight um, across difference to begin those conversations. And just to follow up uh, on on that point, I think one of the specific dynamics that I have seen that has been really concerning has really been around this idea of shutting people down and the ways in which we as society do that both within the profession of student affairs and in higher education and society in general. I think that uh, we've been uh, we've been really engaging in practices of uh, denouncing things. Right? We use words like denounce, and um, many people gathered behind Hillary Clinton's use of the word deplorable. Right? Like these people are deplorable people, and so it's. Uh, like this sort of name calling, it's this re um, rejection of people that has really created m more barriers for dialogue. And so uh, without addressing the past harms that have been created, and I think with social media, it's even more difficult because someone could just make a post and then someone will say, well, no, you're like, you're a terrible, terrible person, right? Not your ideas are terrible, but you are a terrible person for saying this. It, it becomes really difficult to address, um, um, like how do we re repair relationships that are sort of, non-existent in the social media spaces. I think that brings me to my next question because I think um, on my last episode I also asked about transparency and sharing our own perspectives. Um, I, I think all of us are active to a certain extent on social media. Um, Vu, can you talk a little bit about how you engaged or didn't engage um, and how in, in terms of sharing how you were feeling or you know, we're feeling about the outcome of the election. And then, you know, how does this um, kind of fit with that broader perspective around what you were just talking about around around dialogue? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, uh, being in the state of Ohio during election season, I don't think I was prepared for, um, you know, I think all this stuff that I'm saying about healing, I think just comes from a very personal place. Um, I just remember this feeling, this constant weight and feeling and tension of uh, in the air, right? There's always something in the air where I would walk into a room and there would be immediate paranoia about, oh, like who supports who in this room? And like, are there people who are like against me, right? It was very much this constant sense of othering, like there's me and then there's everyone else. And so it just, became very draining for me over months and months and months. 
And it got to a point where I realized that I was kind of tired of this psychology uh, and standpoint of questioning and constant demonization of the other. And so, and this was uh, particularly close to me in regards to the class that I teach. I teach two sections of an undergraduate class and I know that there are students that have very different points of view than I do. And specifically, there was this one student who came up to me on the day of the election who is very open with his support of Donald Trump and asked me, oh, hey, Vu, who are you voting for? And I told him I was voting for Hillary Clinton. And he said, oh, that's great. You know, like, I, underst like, I understand why people vote for her and not Donald Trump. And we had just had this more civil conversation based on the relationship that we've established over the course of the class. And so that for me was just that connection to humanity that was um, uh, what Alex was talking about. And I think uh, has really spearheaded this new, the second line of research for me on social divisiveness. Uh, there's this concept in socio sociology called homophily, which basically uh, is another way of saying love for a love of the same. So we're attracted, we're, we find affinity with those who are like us or we perceive are like us. Um, it's sort of a more positive notion uh, or framing of what some people like to call self-segregation, uh, kind of kind of like uh, Beverly Tatum's book on, on why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria. I think the ways in which we've created social divides uh, has just become so apparent to me in this from this election season. And I think one of the things that we need to consider as higher education is the divide along lines of education. And so, um, I really appreciated Antonio talking about the need to communicate across differences and creating spaces of dialogue. Uh, and I agree with that. I think one of the limitations of higher education though is that when we create these spaces, that they're spaces for higher education, for people within colleges and university contexts. And so when we, talk, when we think back to the election, one of the biggest divides along voting lines were around educational background. So people who were college educated or have some college education overwhelmingly voted for one candidate and people who were not college educated voted for the other candidate. And so, so I think that's one of the things that higher education is going to also need to deal with is this um, perception of from people who are not on college campuses of who of what college campuses represent, who college educated people are, this uh, perception of elitism and uh, sort of uh, standing in the ivory tower. I think that's one of the things that uh, is one of the social divides that I'm paying a lot of attention to. There have been a lot of articles uh, published on this over the past month in different art uh, newspapers. And, um, and I think that, yeah, higher education is going to need to think beyond college campuses and universities. Yeah. Cassie, what are your thoughts about this responding to, um, to Vu's points? I think a little bit about the um, or sort of the original question of, you know, kind of responding across difference or when folks aren't open to having a responsibility or a, a conversation. Um, 
So I think about, you know, higher education, especially public higher education is supposed to be accessible to all and the outcomes are kind of universal opportunities. And so all students should be have the opportunity to secure civic efficacy. And if you look at, you know, sort of the traditional AACNU ideas or even greater expectations from a decade ago about what do students hope to achieve, being informed, empowered, and responsible citizens through their liberal arts education. They should have a well-rounded worldview um, of not just ideologically, but like understand sort of global economic, political issues, finance, health systems, all those sorts of things that allow them to be an informed citizen. So when these issues of civic life that are central to election and electoral politics specifically, they have the capacity to either draw from existing knowledge or go out and find new knowledge. And so some of the research that I've produced um, demonstrates that that students, you know, we, we have sort of outcomes, like how are liberal arts outcomes doing? We have evidence to focus on that. That's one body of research. Other folks do that, but we have one, that one body of research. But we also need to do additional work to understand, you know, there's sort of a skills deficit, a civic skills deficit among students. Students don't really, so if we think about a cross difference, that might be an entry point for students to think about wherever you come from ideologically, whatever your value commitments are, all of you deserve the, the opportunity through college to act upon those values and to hold institutions and organizations responsible for collective expectations. And so helping students, I mean, part of entering the dialogue about difference is figuring out what skills do folks need to have what what sort of commitments are students, what drives their motivation? And I think, you know, coming at it from that lens of that everybody, everybody needs these opportunities, it actually creates a space in a conversation to have, have, have the group kind of, I'm thinking about in the classroom specifically, but have the group come to an understanding that we're all driven by different values. And how, you know, sort of the ideas earlier about like coming at it from the dignity of humanity. Like we're driven by different values. Those, those might be driven by religion. Those might be driven by you know other value commitments, other kind of moral discernment value commitments. Um, but I point that out there is that like focusing on the process of becoming civic, of connecting, of trying to lay out. You know, how do you understand what framing a social media argument is? What are those values you're going to pursue? Does that give you the ability to be empowered to amplify your agenda? Are you doing that from an informed basis? Like, is it based in fact specifically? And then what's your responsibility to others in the way that you communicate in order to have sort of a baseline of um, decorum that allows other folks to hear you? Uh, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. Thank you. We So we had it have had a phenomenal amount of questions from Twitter. So I'm gonna jump into a couple of those because I, I think they relate to this conversation about civic dialogue and engaging in community. Um, one of the questions was specifically um, from Becca O'Donnell. Uh, because we offered support, some students saw this as siding with the losing side. Anyone um, achieve a good balance? Um, I saw the question on the back channel and it, and it and it struck me and I struggle with the notion 
that providing a space for who even on a temporary basis might be our most vulnerable, our most marginalized groups of students is seen as choosing a side rather than how are we providing support for the entire campus. And so I say to that notion, resist, uh, simply simply resist that, uh, that line of thought. I would also add to that, when we provide those spaces, all of the spaces have been open and you have to articulate that sometimes very clearly open to all. That was a request from uh, some of our administrators, something I believed into making sure that everyone knew while those spaces might have a specific target that you say uh, explicitly that this is a space open to all students or to the campus community. If you can, when you're co-constructing those spaces, how might you be um, including others who have different points of view? That's a balanced conversation. Um, and in some of our more subsequent spaces, we've we've included those. Some of the spaces that will be created tonight have individuals who have a very wide range of viewpoints. Our faculty panel had a very wide range of viewpoints in it. And so it's uh, while, the as Alex spoke earlier, the choir may come because the choir might feel a need to. But I think you have to go out and make sure that those students who have those various viewpoints are invited. Um, that we're included, that we, um, and that your your panelist, if you're having a panel, but that the viewpoints present, presented in the space include various sectors of your campus community. I, I think too, what I will add is that um, right there's a certain perception as to what as to the the why and the how of these events which we which we lose control of as soon as we put marketing out right um, the other thing too is to say that if one person one or the uh, if one of the two major party candidates won that like the pain our students are experiencing around Flint around police brutality around the Syrian refugee crisis would all have just evaporated or not be as serious as they are now is to kid ourselves into thinking is, is to then go into that dualistic thinking again about like pain and like whose party actually serves what interests and whose interests and 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 that I don't want to create a false equivalency either in this moment when I'm making this comment right I want to be very conscious of like the rhetoric that was not I wouldn't I would say that there was rhetoric that demonized people on both sides, but on particular sides, more people were demonized than others. And so I'm trying not to create a false equivalency and also say that to say that like the pain would not be as real for some of our students. You know, I had students tell me after the election, this is just this another day. This is just the day after, right? And we still have all of this stuff that really needs to be solved on a local and global level that this person may affect in many ways, but also in many not other ways as well. And so I, I really wanted us to be conscious about that and invite that conversation when students say we cited, right? Because tell me more about that. What do you mean we cited? Who did we side with? And what does that mean? Because um, I want to explore that with you more. That's a perfect conversation moment, I think. Yeah, and I would like to add that I'm down with resisting, and I think that's uh, important to maintain both our individual and um, group, whatever groups we define ourselves as part of group values. Um, I think in addition to that, though, for uh, I, I think it's important for us to listen to the resistance, right? I think for me, 
what I hear have heard a lot is an undertone of resentment in these voices of resistance to dialogue and being a part of these communities and uh, and I uh, and I, I think that's one of the um, one of the ways in which we've fallen short uh, a bit as social justice educators is um, not doing a good enough job listening, uh, especially to uh, not necessarily the words of what people are saying, but where they're coming from and what people's stories are. And so um, understanding where this resentment might come from and using that as one of the bridges to create and engage, uh, create communication and engage with people, uh, I think is really important. I'm gonna shift for a moment because I think some of these conversations are happening in face-to-face -face spaces and then others are happening within our online and social media um, context. And I'm, I'm curious about what role in particular with this election and beyond um, social media plays in terms of promoting social change, promoting engagement, providing a platform for learning about political issues, um, and just in general, the, you know, the climate um, that you can sense through a social media exchange. Um, Adam, I know this is your area of uh, scholarship. Do you want to talk a little bit about political learning and social media? Oh, mute. <laughs> there we go. Sorry. Um, so in terms of uh, the, the student side of that we're talking, or the professional yeah. side. I mean, I yes. think you could go all go beyond the student piece, but I'm I'm curious about kind of how students are using social media to have some of these conversations, mm -hmm. and then how that also translates into um, yeah. our broader profession. So, um, from a, a research perspective and a little bit from a practitioner perspective, I think I hold activism a little bit separate from learning and engagement, even though they're related concepts and. Um, they're they're really inseparable, but I think that if you're looking at it from a social media perspective, um, in terms of the the activist side, um, it's changed movements uh, clearly. I think um, the way that social media uh, interplays with activism, it's it's made them less hierarchical. Um, it's allowed for organizers to scale quickly and get people involved quickly, um, and the process is iterative. So. Um, it allows for a, a dialogue and a conversation that um, can allow participants to shape a movement. So these immersive narratives um, encourage others to join. And so I think social media has really had a, a positive impact in terms of the amount of participants in activism. Um, there are other issues that, that speak to the negatives of it. I mean, you can think about like that allows powers, like entrenched powers to have greater surveillance over activists. Um, but that's probably another conversation. <laughs> um, but on the sort of more learning and engagement side, I think it's uh, what social media does is it allows for um, a more flexible, uh, customized learning that happens and, and growth in that area. But I think at the same time, it can be overwhelming. So there's so much information that students need to sort through um, that there can be an overload and that data can actually be a challenge. Um, this can also be looked at as, you know, one of the, the main outcomes of higher ed should be cognitive complexity. And I think that that process of sorting through tremendous amounts of data, uh, if it's harnessed correctly um, by faculty and, and staff, um, 
can really be a place where the campus community, uh, you know, the campus does extend online in my opinion. And, and I think that uh, we could look at those spaces as places where learning um, can happen as well. So one of the things that has come up on Twitter um, as a question by Laura Pasquini, I think relates um, to divides and social media and how they are being openly displayed um, within our online communities, um, not only among students, but also, you know, among student affairs professionals and student affairs educators. Um, so curious about why these divides are being openly displayed and what role uh, social media is playing in fostering um, climate. Anyone? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep going if that's sure. okay. Sure. Um, I think uh, if you look at the digital spaces, you, you like we should understand that those in many ways are a reflection of practice and the social norms within a practice. Um, and in some cases our campuses, um, but because not all people are represented in those spaces, it might be a skewed effect at times. So um, different active users have, have different power um, within those structures. So it, it is useful to remember that as context, but um, I'm not sure if Laura's question goes to this point, but um, you know, I guess the elephant in the room on this is the student affairs professionals group and, and kind of what's happened there. Um, and for me, that, that group has actually been really useful um, recently, and I think that um, there's been a few takeaways. And the, the first one is that it's time to listen. Um, to, I think Vu made this point earlier. Um, and I think that we've got a huge deficit of empathy right now. And I think that that's a national problem, but I think that that's also true uh, within our field. Um, and I think that if, we, if we're able to start opening up lines of communication, um, we can find where we where we can grow and I think that at the same time We've got to amplify the voices of people that we haven't always heard from um, And you know to me one of the big pieces of that is that we need to hear from people from historically marginalized populations um, and they need a seat at the table because um, in politics one of the, the sayings that people like to say like to say is that um, if you're not at the table then you're on the menu and I think uh, if you look at that even just from a budget perspective in higher ed and in terms of higher ed policy nationally, um, we need to get representative populations a seat at the table so that we can make actual inroads in terms of policy and in terms of uh, impact uh, on democracy and, and on the population at, at large. So once we understand our purpose and we understand uh, how to move forward, I think that what social media uh, does for us is it provides platforms where we can um, help identify diff the different conversations and then help amplify ones that that really need to be heard. So in regards to uh, the original question, I think that the divide is really a classic example of homophily, right? We are we find affinity with those who are like us or we perceive are like us and again this goes back to uh, Beverly Tatum's concept of why are, or question of why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria. I think the new cafeteria table is social media, right? Uh, we, um, I mean, studies after studies after studies have shown that uh, people connect with others who they perceive to be like them, 
quote unquote like them. And I think that happens along lines of race. It happens along lines of education, right? So uh, I think again, going back to this education divide, like we are, I think it's imperative for us to ask the question of why are all the educated people sitting at the cafeteria table and uh, everyone else sitting at other tables. And so, uh, so I think that uh, language, uh, using homophily as uh, uh, concepts can uh, really help us name this issue. And there's a whole body of literature in sociology and other fields that uh, address this, um, this uh, social phenomenon. Cassie, do you have thoughts? Yeah, I, as, I, as I'm thinking about like the, the table and thinking about social media and that space in particular, um, yeah, it certainly has, social media certainly democratizes dialogue in a way that, it, that folks in different communities can opt into in terms of access that they haven't before. But I, to some extent, you know, thinking about the food sort of last point about like who's at the table and who, who are these actors who are involved, there's also, you know, sort of a predominance of um, people opt in and they stay in and those voices those voices tend to be closed they're you know the on-ramps aren't necessarily as numerous but to that end um the thing that really concerns me about whether they're whether folks are using social media whether they're consuming news whether they're observing political discourse from tv talking heads you know those might even be some of the more um you know, age-dependent demographics, different ways of using media. I, you know, we've seen millennials use social media and older folks use um, different forms of media and that kind of thing. But the thing that I, I'm so struck by is that college-educated folks seem to be absorbers of political discourse as opposed to necessarily either A, wanting to talk about it in greater depth, mm -hmm. or B, wanting to have a genuine response that's based in sort of their own thoughtful position taking before they were presented with someone else's ideas. Like, it's almost like we were missing this space to give students the lifelong capacity to construct their own knowledge about issues, especially when the stakes are, you know, foreign policy and finance and tax policy and, you know, healthcare, things that affect their everyday lives. And that's really concerning to me. So when I said earlier about like higher ed's produced the problem that we have with our, our civic involvement is that I, I think the problem really is that, that folks are absorbers of information as opposed to act, folks that act upon it. And then they're leaving the few who are at the table to be the actors without sort of you know, and then they can, and then folks complain about who the actors are. I mean, and reasonably so. Like we, we need to have representative democracy in a sense that you need to represent the people. But um, that's kind of where I'm at, thinking about like how politics intersects with the the reality we're living right now. So I'm gonna take it head on because um, I love Vu's point of listening and. I think when we think about, I see on, and I want to acknowledge the people who are on the back channel talking about that group, that syllabus, as well as we're talking about this. It's there has been a lack of listening that has happened in the profession. And as much as there is a lack of listening, I think some have heard, and we have heard in a space of, and same thing, you know, Vu, you're talking about hearing our students who 
are providing narratives that are different than ours, are telling their own story, and, and we're not being hearing them as their spaces who haven't been heard. And the Student Affairs Facebook group has been a space of where others have gone to be heard. I continue as I mentor a lot of our graduate students and I'm going to professional spaces, I am sometimes baffled by um, how many of our professionals feel isolated. But then I go back to my privilege. I work at a place like Michigan State that encourages and fosters at every turn that you're connecting with other individuals that's encouraged and resources are provided for you to go and to talk with other individuals. So I, I don't blame others for finding resources and using resources where they may feel like I might go in this space and share something that's happening to me and knowing that someone might reach out to me directly or through that social space and hear back. And others have gone into that space and felt like when they responded that you're just complaining. Um, I, I encourage everyone to look at several of the pieces that have been posted out about that group because I think all of those voices add into the conversation, talk about listening, talk about resistance. They talk about, um, and some of them give guidance about how we move forward and to some of the other questions about where do we go from here? Some of that has been provided in those pieces um, moving forward too. But I think this notion of listening, I, I'm, it's, it's critically important, but once we listen, how are we listening? And what are we filtering our listening through? Um, and so if we have a seat at the table as actors, and I think in some seats I have a table as an actor, um, it's my responsibility to hear and hear that through multiple lens and ask myself, what can I learn from this? You know, if someone keeps saying something on my team several times over and over again, and I think that they're just complaining, at some point I hope to ask myself, well, maybe something isn't working as well as I would hope it to. Um, the same thing when we talk about our students as well, when they talk about campus climate after these elections. Hopefully we're listening to them. And when we talk about resisting, resisting doesn't necessarily mean that we're not listening to the other crowd. It means also that I don't want to, the, the question earlier, and I'm getting these, I got several in my direct messages, of uh, this notion of resistance, uh, the implication was that we don't provide a space at all and not providing a space because we that seems to side with one group um i resist that notion that we can't hold something or that it's siding with that and i don't know if that helps you um as well but i do appreciate your message and i hope that this shows you too that we are listening to you um as well yeah it's been um challenging watching the back channel hearing all of the great conversations responding to what you all are saying um, I think we could extend this conversation into the next hour very easily, if not a whole nother episode, which I think perhaps we should we should do. Um, but I, I am curious, Cassie, about um, what are the implications, you know, for higher education broadly, but then specifically on student affairs professional preparation programs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how, what do we need to incorporate into the curriculum that better addresses political learning um, and and just in general some of the topics that have been brought up today. I think there I think you can approach that in a lot of different ways. I mean, you know, if I'm really going to excite the creative imagination about this, like how do we well we have our sort of metrics of 
um, recommended curricula based in longstanding professional competencies and those sorts of things, do we need to revisit that and think about how could students really use their electives and their master's programs to gain critical areas of need for themselves around their own personal development, whether that if they don't really understand political process models. I mean, I find myself teaching master's students all the time and having to kind of go back and like do sort of like economics 101, like kind of civics, <laughs> like how does legislation get passed? Like how are state appropriations managed? Like some of those sort of like fundamental skill bases that students need. Um, so that would be one thing, rethinking, you know, should we ask ourselves questions about the curriculum? I would also say, but in the practice realm, um, you know, students expect to look at faculty for their content expertise. So they take different courses for content expertise, but they, we know time and time again, students get so much more, not more relative faculty, but so many different things from their relationships with student affairs professionals. These are their key, in large part, their key adult role models of what does it look like to be a working professional who's invested in something that you care about, where you're in a job where you can make a difference, while you also are maintaining a highly integrated, socially aware adult life. And I think student affairs professionals should really think about um, their own sort of political and personal development. If they don't know about the issues that are discussed on the, you know, in the Facebook groups and that kind of stuff for different populations, go educate yourself. You know, if you don't understand what the implications are of the changes that are happening or going to happen around healthcare, educate yourself. This is the sort of modeling behavior that if students don't see that, they're not gonna have any, any templates for enacting it in their own personal life. And so I think we need to think about, so what's our duty? I mean, I, I, I love what was, you know, as we're thinking about, we're hearing about the leadership relative to responsibility at Michigan State. And I, you know, what is my responsibility to vulnerable student populations? And I love the sense of duty that I hear conveyed, but I think every student affairs professional needs to really look inside and say, what's my sense of duty on that individual level interaction? What kind of model am I being for my students day to day and, and living the life that allows them to like, feel like they can take action on issues what it means, you know, however it affects them or their allies. Those are great points. I, we are bumping up against the end of our hour. So I, at this point, I'm going to ask all my panelists to share anything you had wanted to say that we didn't get a chance to ask. Um, and then any uh, resources that you'd like to direct folks to that we can share out to the, to the broader um, Twitterverse as well. So I'm going to, I'm going to start um, on my side here and go with Adam first. Um, first off, uh, so happy to have been part of this, and thanks to the other panelists, and thanks to you, Heather, for having us. Um, the, the one thing I kind of wanted to get across that I think we didn't really talk that much about today is that um, for one, one of the central ideas of higher ed is that it's for student thought to be challenged and for them to have moments of cognitive dissonance. And I think that um, from an educational perspective, uh, when you enter into a conversation with one view, even though you might come out of the other end of the conversation with your same view, you have a better understanding um, of your own perspective and why you believe what you believe. Um, and maybe your views change or evolve, but I think no matter what, they there's more depth to your thought. Um, and so I think that's the importance of, of having these kind of dialogues 
um, especially now in light of this election and, and kind of how we decide to respond to this. Um, and related to that, uh, there's this notion that, uh, that's been happening for a long time of the tension between uh, free speech and uh, inclusive learning on college campuses. Um, and in our office, our, our sort of mantra is that free speech should be met with more free speech. So um, an example of that that I saw was at, at Boston College, there was some issues with Yik Yak on campus. And the students uh, in a student organization there came together and created um, a, a response video on YouTube to, to kind of combat the, the bullying that, that had been happening on campus. Um, and I think that when we think creatively, bring students into the conversation um, and think about how can we remain uh, true to the notion of free speech, but um, embrace inclusive environments for, for all student learners, that's, that's really important. Um, and the last thing I'll share is just um, after this election, uh, our office uh, puts out the National Study of Learning, Voting, and Engagement. Um, it's free for all college campuses, and what we do is we provide a, a voting report um, for your school, and you can see exactly how many students voted on your campus, and then it will work with you to allow you to kind of think about uh, ways that you can kind of improve student learning and, and promote it. And we are going to tweet out a link to that um, now as well as a link to the website um, there. Thank you so much, Adam, for being here today. Alex, I'm going to go to you next. Yeah, I think for me, I would really emphasize the, the need to be more complex in the ways in which we do our praxis and our, our reflection and our action in the field. Um, uh, both complex and interdisciplinary, now is the time more than ever. Um, I, one, think about um, a book our office is reading right now, which we can tweet a link out, it's called Trauma Stewardship, which we have um, really been taking in a lot and talking about the effects of trauma on people and how tr trauma leads to a lack of complexity in thought and how, how we start to address people's trauma to then get to complexity, I think is really important because I want us to talk about how anger outrage and love are not antithetical to each other. You can actually hold those things at the same time. But we people just think that, I used to think that they were so singular that they could not exist simultaneously. And so there's a need for more simultaneity, for complexity. Um, and I think to address one of our bigger hypocrisies in this moment, is that we are often taught from when we are little that difference is good, but when things get hard, we say, what is the same about us? And that is something I'd really like to challenge in our field right now, because why, why do we feel that like we have to all feel the same way, the same things about these pieces, and that there is a distinction between dialoguing across difference and dialoguing across destruction. There are ideologies that completely are out to destroy people, right? And then there are ideologies that have different ways of approaching people that still maintains their dignity and humanity. And we have to really start making those distinctions a bit clearer for folks. Um, and one last thing I'll say too is like, I know for me, I need to be doing even more work in history. I think that we have lost, I have lost how much historical context um, is shaping this current moment right now and how hopefulness can be protected by history. 
um, in this particular moment, because this is not the first time we have felt hopeless in this country. I'd also recommend uh, listening to Is America Possible by Vincent Harding. It's an episode of On Being um, that has really helped me to maintain hopefulness in this moment. Um, as just an incredible thinker um, in, in the world, and we lost Vincent Harding a few years ago, but looking at the work of Vincent Harding, Grace Lee Boggs, um, Dean Spade in particular, and, and really thinking about how we do that work overlappingly. Thank you, Alex. Uh, Vu. All right, I'm gonna keep my closing comments brief because I know we're against time, up against time. We're all good. So I'm reminded of one of the most important lessons I have learned in my life, and I'm gonna give a shout out to the program on intergroup relations at the University of Michigan and the great folks there who have taught me this lesson. Uh, and that lesson is that we, are, we all need to be teachers and learners. And I think one of the, the paradoxes that we face in higher education is that we are socialized and conditioned to be experts, right? And so um, we, are, we are very proud of our roles as educators. I think we all, we take that very seriously and uh, we mean well and we, we try to do well. And I think that one of the, um, the outcomes of this election and one of the realizations for me has been that when people are hurt and are feeling like they aren't heard, they, they don't want to talk to an expert. They want to talk to someone who is listening and learning from them. And so I think uh, being, an education, uh, be, being an education in higher education I think many people have been perplexed as to why people have been, um, many people have been so quick to reject facts. I've been hearing that a lot. I don't, I don't think it's that they're rejecting facts. I think they, that what's underlying that is this resentment, is this distrust of experts, right? And so we as quote unquote experts, uh, regardless of what, what studies show how much research we do, how much empirical evidence we have on things, that's not going to be heard because of this distrust. And so, um, so I think one, uh, one resource that I'll offer is the book that I'm currently reading called Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. And it's a book about um, a uh, autobiographical book about uh, uh, J.D. Vance who grows up in, uh, hillbilly Appalachia, um, West Virginia, and then moves to Ohio and um, has to navigate this uh, cultural assimilation from hillbilly culture to, uh, to I guess, contemporary culture. And I think it, it really helps take me to a, a different uh, space that higher education really has not... Um, has, has not pushed me to, right? It, it really has taken me out of that higher ed bubble. And so uh, I would really recommend that book for folks who are interested in um, trying to build a little bit more empathy beyond those who are college educated. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, a, a really important uh, next step for higher ed. Thanks so much, Ruth. Uh, we tweeted that um, link out, I think, or, or, or uh, shortly, so. Cassie, I'm gonna go to you next, and then Antonio is gonna be final. I I have a few things to wrap up I, that kind of build off the points from Vu and Alex. Um, 
this idea, idea that during you know points of contentious or times that folks go to their sameness, and I would I would agree with Alex that we need to kind of um, have a new take on that. the The idea that you know teachers and learners is relative to how we come together, and and when we think about social change. Coming together is around solidarity. It's around common grievances. It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone who's in solidarity um, wants to, or looks the same, or is the same. It means that they're come to this sense of feeling a mutual obligation and solidarity with others, that they're willing to be both teachers and learners, sharing their stories, getting insights from other people, you know, figuring out that those common differences materialize in very distinctive and unique ways based on what's context. And anytime there is change and social change processes, even movements with great solidarity have tremendous, tremendous fracturing inside them. And yet the progress still occurs or the movement still happens. So um, I just think that that's sort of where we need to end up thinking about how does difference will manifest whether it's across huge chasms or whether it's within the same neighborhood of, you know, kind of thinking and and that sort of thing. And so I agree that we can't look for sameness, but we need to look for solidarity. Mm, thank you. Um, Antonio. So my uh, closing thoughts, two or three pieces here, it's um, really a long thinking about the, the title of this webcast, you know, uh, safety dialogue and student engagement. And this election brought out pieces of all of that that really affect our campus climate. And so I if your campus has not engaged your students in dialogue about what are the issues that are facing your campus concerning campus climate, I, I would urge you to get proactive about your responsibility in, in uh, creating a campus climate that centers along your values um, and so a lot of our campuses have inclusion as a value and I don't want to say inclusion as talking about uh, people of color but I want to talk about inclusion as including those diverse voices from all across the political spectrum um, all across different uh, different ideologies and so forth. How are you engaging those voices? And after you're listening to them, how are you constructing a campus community where our students feel safe, where they feel like they can engage in, in dialogue across difference? And so it's, it's, it's not enough to just hear, but now it's time to move into action. What are we doing with what our students have been telling us? Um, and the second part is the same thing that's happening post-election for our students has been happening with our professionals. And so I'm looking for our professional associations across higher education and student affairs to hear from our professionals. What have they been saying about the work that we've been doing in the profession? And how are we responding to create a profession that hears diverse voices, that values them, and that we're doing something about it? And so I don't, I don't want to ignore that our professionals are saying the same thing as our students are saying, that they're sometimes not feeling safe, that they're not feeling like they're, they have been heard and they're looking for a space we're calling it a seat at the table but they want to make sure too that they know that that you know that we all know that everyone belongs here in this profession so what are we going to do with the conversations that have happened in the virtual space and how are we translating them along our professional values um, i hope that as we're constructing our conferences this season that we're including some of these topics and dialogues and that we're not going to skirt over them and so bring up some of the voices that have been online into the forefront and let's have critical conversations 
Uh, we're not we're not going to all agree. We see that already. But I think uh, this election season has done that. It has brought to light a lot of issues of climate on our campuses and in our profession. And I hope that once we listen, that we move into action. Thank you. Thank you to all, uh, all five of you. Julie, we missed you. Um, Julie texted me a little bit ago saying she wasn't going to be able to make it after all. Um, to those of you who wrote on Twitter questions or emailed me, I am so, you know, we just had a fabulous conversation today and literally are already 10 minutes over. So thank you for your questions. I know any of our panelists would probably be happy to exchange messages with you. Um, Again, thank you to Val and, and Alex Sylvester who were uh, madly tweeting the back channel today. And thank you to our sponsors, ACPA and Stoner. So coming up next week, uh, Tony, Duty, and I are going to be uh, presenting our second Contested Issues live debates on stage at Rutgers University. Uh, we have a fantastic lineup of eight seasoned professionals and um, educators and scholars who are pairing up to have a fun um, discussion and present opposing opinions on several different uh, topics. So we will be broadcasting that hopefully live uh, at a different time, however. It's Thursday at 11.15 a.m. And at a minimum, you'll be able to watch the recording later um, as well. So you can receive reminders about this and other Higher Live Student Affairs Live episodes by subscribing to our newsletter. And you can also browse our archives at higheredlive.com. Again, I'm Heather Shea Gasser. Thanks again to this fabulous panel and to everybody who's watching. Have a great day, everybody.